Oh, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we love you. Thanks for the table this morning. It's good to be fed. And we thank you that our host, Jesus Christ, is so gracious and merciful to call us, even when we're not perfect and when we're struggling. And um, sometimes when we don't even believe, your hand is still extended to us, Lord. And so, God, we thank you for that. Thank you for the body of Christ that comes together and remembers why we are the body of Christ. It's because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, Father. And we give him thanks. Father, bless the word of God. Um, may we continue to be fed um, through the scriptures this morning. Uh, we thank you for what you're going to do in and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, please. Amen. Thank you very much. I'm going to have you read a passage of scripture with me, if you would, please. And um, I'm going to read it from mine because too far away. So, so this is Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, um, but uh, it's worth our, our, our reading today. Let's read together, shall we? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May God add blessings to his word. You know, the Bible starts out with one of the most memorized and most noted phrases. And even though you may not be a Bible verse memorizer, I bet you know this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's do that one more time, because then you can say, I memorized a verse of the scriptures for 2020. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. See, it wasn't that difficult, was it? In the beginning, God created. This is our first introduction to God within the written revelation. And more specifically, to Jesus as the creator of all things. That's what Colossians 1 tells us. It's also what Hebrews 1 tells us. The Holy Spirit hovering over the uncreated chaos that was before. And there we have the Trinity. Father God is the architect who has the eternal plans. Jesus is the creator, the general manager, who speaks and things come into being according to that divine plan. And then the Holy Spirit is the divine laborer. He takes the words of the Son, the plans of the Father, and he brings them into actual form. One God, three distinct persons, or in theology we call those economies. Thousands of years later, 
And we see those familiar words again, by the way, in John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and the Word was with God. In the beginning. And we've just finished out Christmas. And if you think about it, the triune God was present in that. The Father had a divine plan to send His one and only begotten Son into this world, born of a virgin. The second person of the Trinity came in flesh to be our Redeemer, our Savior. And how did the whole process happen? Through the creative work of the Holy Spirit, who came and overshadowed Mary and the birth of the second person of the Trinity entered into this world. To create something wonderful, church, to create something new in the beginning, it's always creating a way to save us from our sins. And we say, Merry Christmas. All four Gospels are unified in these facts, by the way. That Jesus was the Son of God. He lived a perfect life so that he could die a perfect death, a redemptive death for our sins. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead as a sign that God the Father accepted his willing payment for humanity and that he has risen. Thank you. Happy Easter or Resurrection Day. See the beginnings of things? There is an ascension that will be coming, a time where Jesus will leave this earth and sit at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, but that's not yet, not where we are in our proposed studies. There is something new that Jesus has to begin. There's a beginning that's still ahead that he needs to usher in. And we're going to start a new series on the book of Acts called the Acts of the Apostles in the beginning three. Because that is really what's going on here. Something new is starting. So for that reason, let's begin by turning to the Gospel of John. Thought I'd help you with that. <laughs> John 20, please. John chapter 20, 21 and 22, because Acts is not isolated. Acts is part of something. Acts is part of a story, a narrative that started in the beginning when God created the heaven and the earth. And everything subsequent is leading up to something else. That's what the book of Revelation is, by the way. It's the culmination of that on this earthly plan. John chapter 20 and 21, Jesus had resurrected. He's now made a frightening and miraculous first appearance through locked doors to address his disciples. They're scared to death. And the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples is, Shalom. Shalom. Peace. Peace. Don't be afraid. And then we see in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Shalom. Peace be with you. Ah, interesting verse coming up. Can you say it with me, please? As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Uh, something new is taking place. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus' earthly mission to save people from their sin is complete. He's died on the cross. That sacrifice has been accepted before the Father God, but something new needs to begin for that to be effective for humanity. Somebody needs to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. It's not that long since Christmas, church. It isn't, really. I'm trying to tie things together here. But you get the idea. So this is a missional passage. This is, Jesus' work is done, but now it needs to get out. And how is that going to happen? It's going to happen through the disciples that he has chosen and equipped and is now going to send out. So just as the Father sent the Son, Jesus is now sending his disciples out to make more disciples, more followers of Jesus. So as we anticipate the book of Acts, it's a book about how the 11 disciples, not 12 because Judas is where? Dead and in hell. Judas is dead. It's about how 11 men are going to go out and reach the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that sound phenomenal to you? It should, because that's exactly the task at hand. They are going to transform and change the entire world. And that's what the book of Acts is about. But they cannot do that without a spiritual transformation. I don't know if you know the story of John and Charles Wesley. Do you know them? I came out of a Methodist faith background, so those are, well, the originators. So John and Charles, John was the theologian. Charles was a theologian in his own right, but he was more of the songwriter. I guarantee if you flip in your hymn book, you're going to find a whole lot of hymns. He wrote over, I don't know how many, 3,000 hymns in his lifetime. So John and Charles... Uh, they were Anglicans from England, uh, decided that they were going to go out and tell people about Jesus, the gospel. So they got in a boat, they uh, sailed down to the colonies, I believe down into the Carolinas, South and North Carolina. They were going to link up with another Anglican church, and they were going to go out and save the heathen Indians and all the other wretched frontiersmen who didn't know who Jesus was. They were going to do that from all the way down to the Carolinas, all the way up into the, the, the Northeast. They were abject failures. They couldn't figure it out. How come we go to city after city after city and no one responds? I, we don't understand this. So they got a ship up in the northeast, we're heading back to England, a Moravian was on that ship, and John and Charles began to talk to them about their sort of disappointments at sharing the gospel, and Moravian said, well, have you been born again? And John and Charles said, we have no idea what you're talking about. He goes, gentlemen, that's your problem. The problem was that John and Charles came to this, this, these colonies to share a set of facts. But Christianity isn't about a set of facts, is it? It's not about the history of a man who lived in the Middle East who was 
crucified and killed and who was a good teacher. It's not about that at all. Christianity is not about dead ritualism, but that's exactly what they were trying to promote. They weren't bringing Jesus Christ. They were bringing dead Anglicanism. They were bringing dead ritualism. Go to church, do these things. Yes, say yes to these facts. That's what Christianity is. Who wants that? And all God's people said, please. I don't want that. I don't want dead religion. That's not what Christianity is about at all. It's about a relationship, a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, where the Holy Spirit comes into your life and transforms you inside and out to be more like Jesus. John and Charles weren't transforming anyone. They were trying to conform people to a religious system or religious rituals. It wasn't until they got back to, to England and got into a, a Bible study on the book of Romans. And by the way, they didn't even get into Romans. They were reading the preface of Romans by Martin Luther. And John and Charles, in their writings, said, all of a sudden, we felt this amazing warmth like the overwhelming love of God pouring over us, transforming us. And it was then and there that we became followers of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing story? So if you go to our text today, you're going to see the same thing happening. You cannot go out and do ministry. You cannot go out and transform the world by just spouting out a bunch of facts about who Jesus is and having people assent, write their name in the front of their Bible and then go on. That's not what this is about. It's about getting after the heart and finding God working in such a way that transformation takes place so that you're not the same. And that's what we see happening in this passage of scripture. We see the mission given, but now we see the empowerment in 22. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and he said to them, do what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on his disciples. This is the same language as Genesis 2, where God breathes into Adam and he becomes a, do you know that passage? A living soul or a living being. For the disciples, this is not physical life, like in Genesis 2, but this is spiritual life. As the Apostle Paul would write, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins by nature, objects of the wrath of God. But now you are alive in Christ Jesus. Luke, the disciple who ministered with the Apostle Paul, we're going to see this about halfway through the book where we start seeing, instead of third person, we see uh, Luke including himself in the narrative. A disciple of Paul who wrote the Gospel of Luke, a Gospel written primarily to Gentiles, He's going to continue that narrative, that account, by telling us how that new birth, that salvation, works its way out. Paul wrote to the Philippians, work out your salvation. Do you remember that passage? How? With trembling and fear. That's what I'm going to love about Acts. I'm going to see Paul, and I'm going to see him several places in his missionary journeys where we might think of Paul as this strong, stalwart guy that nothing ever bothers that is so not true in the scriptures. Do you know Paul was afraid? Do you know Paul was frightened? 
There's a whole lot of stuff that happened to that guy. And I'm glad the Lord didn't show it to him up front because I think Paul would have said, no, I'm heading back to Tarsus. God did an amazing work in Paul's life. And it was the working out of his salvation that we see because as Paul worked out his own salvation, other people saw that and came to Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what this is about. Something new has started, church. It's the beginning of the church, the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual stones that build the temples of God whose cornerstone is Jesus. It's the beginning of the, the, the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit in the works of his followers to the glory of the Father. And as we enter into the book of Acts, I want to express a number of things to you so that we have clarity as we go in. Here's the first one. The book of Acts is what? It is not a history book. Eusebius wrote a book about the church history. If you want to know the historical movements in a very historical, detailed fashion, Eusebius is the guy that you want to go after. That's not Luke's intent. This is a book that contains historical accounts of the church, but its primary focus is to encourage and support subsequent generations to continue to reach the world for Jesus. This is what we call a missiological focus. Its focus is on the mission, not on the history. History is part of the mission, but the book is missiological. It's mission-oriented. Where is the gospel going and how is it getting there? And how should we pay attention to that in 2020? It has a word for us today. Let me give you the second, please. This is the account of the continued work of Jesus through his disciples. Jesus has phases of his life. You can see Jesus preemptively in the Old Testament through his theophanies and Christophanies. You can see Jesus as he walked this earth. You can see Jesus showing up in John's revelation. Jesus is continuing to work out the Father's plan for him, actually. And so this is just an extension of what Jesus is doing. Number three, the beginning of uh, a new role, power, and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there were occasions where you find in the Hebrew that the Holy Spirit came in or indwelt a person. Joshua is an example of that, all right? Most of the times it doesn't say the Holy Spirit dwelt. It says the Holy Spirit did what? It came upon. That has to do with empowerment for a task, all right? So when you read David's confession in Psalm 51 and David says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, David wasn't talking about losing his salvation. He was talking about losing the ability to do what? To, to work out the plan of God in his life because he saw that happen to Saul, all right? But in the book of Acts, you start seeing this language. You see the, that people are now filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells you. Ephesians chapter one, that when you embrace Jesus Christ as your as your Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment 
um, of, of that which is coming. Uh, all of those wonderful things start happening in the book of Acts in a new way with the Holy Spirit. You also see the, uh, the ratcheting up um, and the more clarity of the spiritual gifting. Verse or number four, it's the beginning of Christian ministry expansion, especially into church, non-Jewish areas. Aren't you glad? Because I don't think you're Jewish. At least I don't know that you're Jewish. You might be, all right? But we see the gospel counterculturally from a Jewish perspective because the good news, if you would, from Genesis chapter 12, when God made a promise to Abraham that he would be a nation and out of that nation would become a blessing, everybody who was Jewish thought we are the chosen class. Now we've got branches grafted into the tree and they're called Gentiles. So this is the beginning of that movement out to not only Jerusalem, but out to Samaria and then out to the uttermost parts of the world. Number five, the beginning of the Christian community, its practices and priorities. Um, oh, what did they call that? Uh, I just lost it. No. It's, um, it's, it's looking at the beginning of something, but not making it always exactly what you need to do. I don't know what that, I can't remember what that's called. Uh, my mind just went blank on that. It'll come. I'll yell it out around three or four this afternoon, so just be listening for me. For example, the church, the, the original church met where? They met in houses. They met in homes. We don't do that today. We meet in churches. We meet in assembly places like churches or facilities where God's people can come and gather together because of our cultural changes. So there are practice and priorities that we see in the first century church that we can learn from. There are also practices and priorities that are culturally driven that won't work for us who live in 2020 in America. Does that make sense? Yeah, so those are, so we're gonna have to wrestle with what we call institutionalizing of the church. Uh, being, putting up buildings, spending multi-million dollar facilities. There are people that actually oppose that, by the way, and they still meet in homes, and they think we ought to be spending it on missions. All right, six, the beginning of Christian theology, especially the Old Testament in light of fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled prophecies connecting to Jesus. Very, very quickly in the book of Acts, in the second chapter and in the third chapter, Peter does something when he preaches. He goes back to the Old Testament and he says, this is that. The thing that Amos predicted, the thing that Joel predicted, that's, this is right now, guys. This is fulfilled prophecy. Now, they also said something part B that's yet to come, but if they fulfilled this, what do you think part B is going to be? With certainty, God's going to fulfill that as well, and that has to do with judgment. So a lot of theology is going to be coming up. You need to remember, the New Testament has not been written. Right? We've got some gospels out there, but nothing's codified, nothing's spread out so that everybody has it. That's still moving forward. We won't get to that 
for another hundred years. But the idea of the Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh, the, the, the law, the writings, and the prophets, the apostles are always taking new believers and going, oh, do you remember reading that in church? That's, that's this. That's what happens. Number seven, please. It's primarily the story of two individuals. Who are they? Peter and Paul. First half is Peter. We get to chapter nine. Shift, Paul. And then we don't see Peter. We see Peter in 15, but we don't see him after that. Eight, I'm only going to 10, we're done. It is the beginning of the established church leadership. It's the first time we see elders being appointed. It's the first time we see the rising up of what we call diakone, which is the anglicized word or the Greek word for what? Deacons. Deacons and deaconesses. We see that the church needs individuals to rise up to be able to help govern and to help lead people in a very healthy way to the teachings of Christ and to fellowship and to the needs of the body of Christ. That begins in the book of Acts 9. It is to convince the reader that you cannot hinder or prevent the transforming message of the gospel from reaching every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's a highly missiological statement, which is what governs the whole book. Let me give you the reality and the last one, which is 10. It is a defense of the gospel before the secular authorities, the unbelieving world, and consequences of such defense, which may lead to church suffering and even death. So that's uh, the book of Acts as we overview it, as we get into this next week, as we begin chapter one, and we look at the first part where Jesus is still here and where he's pointing the disciples. So, uh, so keep that in prayer. I want to challenge you as we look at the book of Acts to examine yourself. Are you born again? Or are you like Charles and John, perpetuating a dead religion, a ritualistic thing that doesn't convert, doesn't transform anybody? In fact, Jesus said to the Jews, you make them twice a son of hell because of the way you bring people in. Do you truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's transformed you? What's your divine mission? What do you believe about the purpose of the church? By the way, that's often very confusing. I've already heard confusion, even here at St. Thomas, about what the church is supposed to be. And when you have confusion about that, it makes it difficult to, to press forward with unity. And are you committed to suffering? Ouch. And to even die for your faith? I don't want to be a prophet, but I think that's coming very quickly to us. And so we better, better be certain about our stance and whether we do that and to ask the Holy Spirit to help us in the process. I want you to think about these things as we pray. Let's close together, shall we? Father, we love you. Thanks for the goodness. Thanks for the table, for worship, for giving, for prayers, for the word. As we just began the study of Acts, thank you for giving us a uh, a historical glimpse of how those 11 men, adding Matthias is 12, adding Paul is 13, all of these men, uh, Lord, with the exception of uh, actually one, John, would end up dying. Um, most horrific deaths, by the way, in order to perpetuate 
the good news of Jesus Christ to those who desperately needed it. Father, we ask that uh, if there's one here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that, that you'll just move, Lord, in their heart. And uh, Father, if there are questions about that, um, let them come to you to ask it or let them come to me or one of our elders to talk about who is this Jesus and how do I become a saved person, a born-again individual. I pray that that person, Father, would not waste time. Today is the day of salvation. Um, it may not be tomorrow. And so give us that. Help us to see our divine mission and give us certainty, Father, about our followership as we head into this wonderful, wonderful book. We thank you for it. Bless your people today, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said with me, please. Amen. God's grace and peace. Grab some coffee and something